Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Imbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and colleague, Mickey Enslicht. Mickey, how does it make you feel that I stepped out on you earlier this week? I feel uh, like you were unfaithful to me, and I feel... Uh... I feel a bit sad. Part of, so I, of course, we're talking that you were you were a guest on Very Bad Wizards, um, doing. Uh, I guess uh, I'm not exactly sure why you were a guest, but you you were helping out with a discussion of Talia Arconi's uh, the generalizability crisis paper, and then you had told me about it. And secretly, I was hoping that you would come to your senses and you know say no, say like, listen, I I've, I've got one podcast co-host. That's me. And, you know, you know, I needed you at first, Very Bad Wizards, and no longer. So, but, um, you're, you know, they're much, much larger audience clearly uh, was attractive. I just believe that you can love multiple podcasts at the same time. This doesn't diminish one bit how I feel about you. There's just room in my life for, for more. Oh, my God. I happen to know you go on other podcasts too, man. So. <laughs> But never as like a co-host, as a guest. I guess you're kind of a guest, but you're, you know, a returning guest. It's like, um, you know, I'm a prude, uh, to be frank. And this whole idea of, you know, uh, a consensual uh, non-monogamy. What's the term for that? Yeah, that's the term. Consensual non-monogamy. You know, you know, people, listeners will judge me. I'm just not down with it. I, I think it would make me deeply uncomfortable. And I'm experiencing it right now. I cannot experience compersion is, is what I'm trying to say. And uh, I was a bit ticked off. I hope their episode is, 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 is worse than ours on the topic. Same topic. Okay, good. Yeah, well, uh, I think it can be a challenge for our listeners to change your mind about non-monogamy, to construe that however you want. Yes, people can try. Uh, I guess I'm prude. I, you know, I'm uh, forward thinking on many things. Uh, this is not one of them. Fair enough. Uh, yeah, so they were, uh, I should say, nice enough to plug us and tell their listeners to check us out. So that, that, that should be good. Um, and it's coming out well, next week as we record this, which probably will be like three weeks uh, before this episode actually airs. So I don't know why I'm even telling our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> this is not useful information. In case you want to go back and check out that episode of Very Bad Wizards, uh, please do. Yes. And please tell us how much better our version of this same discussion was because uh, it makes me 100 percent. Yeah. Mickey. Mickey needs it. OK. So uh, we have sort of a grab bag of topics, but I think first we should do beer now. Yes, uh, we should. And um, we are drinking something called Rabbit of Serbanog. Uh, uh, Serbanog. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce that. Um, it is a white uh, IPA. It's 5.5% uh, alcohol by volume. I want to read the description of it because it's kind of hilarious. Um, so this, this is done by... Um, Indie Pale House in the Junction neighborhood of uh, Toronto. And here's the little description. Um, we embarked on a journey for the Holy Grail and ended up with a white recipe loaded with a, with a vicious amount of late edition hops. The beer's appearance may give the appearance, the perception of a fluffy innocence, but beneath the surface is a cold-hearted killer. Um, so that's what we're drinking. It's a strange uh, description, but uh, we've already been drinking quite a bit already. Uh, so uh, I find it quite delicious, juicy and, and, and yummy. Yeah, it's nice. Uh, we, Mickey obviously chose the beer since it's not random garbage. <laughs> <out of laughs> right. my Cheers. Cheers. 
Okay, so so like I said, uh, we have sort of a, an assortment of topics today, and really the the reason we're recording now um, is sort of a spur of the moment thing is that we have a bunch of interview shows planned, so um, a lot of guests that we're excited about, but there's also been just some stuff that's come up that that we wanted to to chat about, and it's kind of weird to. Uh, fit that into an interview sometimes, right? So we thought that it would be nice to have a show that's just us where we uh, talk about some of these topics. So, Mickey, first up, there's big news in the movie world, no? Yes, there is. And I think this actually has a link with uh, Very Bad Wizards uh, because uh, the movie is... uh... I'm not sure the word sequel is is the right word. A spinoff, maybe. Uh, a movie called uh, The Jesus Rolls. And it's a spinoff or, or a sequel from my favorite movie of, of all time, The Big Lebowski. And uh, Very Bad Wizards uh, references because they have a fantastic episode where they discussed that movie. And it was so good that... Um, you know, I feel like we can never really discuss it and, and, and do do it like the kind of justice that movie deserves, at least not to the extent that they could, that they did. So um, nonetheless, uh, there is this movie. It's stars and uh, uh, John Torturo, who played uh, Jesus Quintana in uh, the original The Big Lebowski. And uh, I think it's many, many years uh, kind of in the making. Um, I have a book called, and I, and I, and I kind of consulted it uh, in preparation for today. It's called I'm a, I'm a Lebowski, You're a Lebowski. Uh, so I've got, actually, I have like a collection of five books on, on the Big Lebowski. People give, give them to me as gifts. And um, in that interview with, with John Torturo, even back then, and I think this was like 2013 or so. Uh, he was already talking about writing a sequel or a spinoff. And he talked about it. And like for, for many years, nothing came about. So I'm like, ah, just like a pipe dream. But lo and behold, a movie's coming out, I believe, in a few months. Um, I think it premiered already in Rome. Um, and it seems interesting. It, it, there's a lot. as a star-studded cast. Uh, so Christopher Walken is in it. Uh, Susan Sarandon is in it. John Hamm of Mad Men fame is in it. Uh, Audrey Tautou from a uh, very well-known French actress uh, who starred in Amelie is in it. Uh, Bobby uh, Cannavale, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, is in it as well. Um, and this is actually less of a sequel uh, to The Big Lebowski and more of a, again, like a kind of spinoff. And it's actually a remake of a controversial French film uh, called Going Places, which was released, I think, in the 70s, starring a very young and hunky uh, Gérard Depardieu. Um, so the, 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 the preview looks interesting. Um, one thing I noted is that, you know, the music in the preview is, uh, I believe it's the Gypsy Kings playing, uh, which, of course, is reminiscent of the very, very famous scene in The Big Lebowski, uh, where I think Jesus is introduced as a character. And in the background is the Gypsy Kings cover of the Eagles Hotel California. Um and I should say, I fucking hate that song and I fucking hate the Eagles. And, and actually one of the, the, my first, the first reasons I love the movie, The Big Lebowski is they also hate the Eagles. The dude hates the Eagles and he bags on them. And that was my initial connection to the movie it was like, Oh, me, me too. I fucking can't stand the Eagles. Yet they had the Gypsy Kings playing uh, a very good, you know, uh, you know, remake of, uh, Hotel California. So they they're playing more songs in, in at least in the in the in the trailer of the uh, the movie. So what do you think of the article and the, and the trailer? Well, I am excited to see this. I don't know what it's going to be like listening to John Turturro do that accent for like an hour and a half. 
<laughs> it might be a lot, but I thought, you know, maybe we go see this together when it comes out in Toronto and then we can uh, review it on the show. Okay, so next up, complete change of topic. Uh, we recorded an episode a while back now, I think this was episode 15, uh, where we touched on the idea of diversity statements and faculty hiring. And are you okay there, Mickey? <laughs> a little accident. Uh, so the idea here is that you require, as part of the hiring process, the candidate to write a statement in some way talking about um, what they've done to contribute to diversity in academia, what they would do, what their um, diversity principles are, and so on. And, you know, I, I listened back to that segment um, just now, just right before we were recording, and I, I was generally skeptical of these, more on the basis of it's not clear what you would do with that information, and it seems like uh, I think the term I used was administrator value signaling. So I was kind of like, well, it's just a extra work for the candidate and to no clear end. Um, and we went back and forth about that for a while. And I was reminded of this. Because I recently ran across uh, a blog post about the use of diversity statements um, at uh, UC Berkeley um, in a specific what's called a, a cluster hire where a bunch of departments in the life sciences got together and they had five positions advertised that they were trying to fill. Um, and what I will say for this process is that it does not seem like empty value signaling. So here's what they did. They had around 900 applicants total. Those applications went to a central committee. Before those applicants were evaluated in any other way, the committee looked at their diversity statements, which were supposed to uh, explain the candidate's diversity philosophy, uh, what they'd done to advance diversity in the past, and what they planned to do to advance diversity as a faculty member at UC Berkeley. On the basis of those statements and nothing else, they cut three quarters of the applicants. And then the remaining 25% were forwarded to the departments. And then there was more diversity stuff that uh, happened later, like they were asked to build it into their job talk. They met with like a equity coordinator or something. That I find that less interesting. What I find remarkable is this idea of you are cutting 75% of the applicants based only on those statements. So literally what this does is it makes diversity the most important criterion. Right. So in other words, you can have won 10 Nobel Prizes and be the world's most amazing teacher. If you write an insufficient diversity statement, you're out. Right. And that seems to me to be, I mean, kind of nuts, honestly. Like it is it's certainly it's not empty signaling, but but that seems very strange for a position that nominally is about teaching and research to say, well, our most important criterion is that these people are committed to a certain agenda about diversity and that they're able to explain how they have in the past and will in the future implement this agenda. It seems like you're selecting people who subscribe to a very specific ideology. And as we can see from the fact that they cut three quarters of the applicants, you know, this is not an easy bar to meet, right? So you're really looking for the committed ideologues and saying, anybody who doesn't fit this ideological um, mold is is out. We're not going to hire them. So Mickey, we were chatting before the show and you said uh, you thought that this policy was defensible. And I'd, I'd love to hear what you think about that. Right. So uh, that's not exactly what I said. I said, I, I'm going to I'm going to play devil's advocate here a little bit and try to take the perspective of, you know, why this might be a good idea. And 
I must admit, I didn't, I don't, I didn't have the full knowledge of the the way this plan was implemented. So I learned something uh, by your description here, um, and I don't think I can defend the the culling of three quarters of the list of applicants. At, you know, uh, uh, you know, without seeing anything else. Okay, but so I can't defend that. But and the reason for that is because now. You're, you're absolutely right. It becomes the master value. It becomes the master criterion upon which every candidate is judged uh, upon. And these are positions in life sciences or? Yeah, life sciences. So biology. Chemistry. Uh, okay, right. So uh, it's hard to understand how, you know, a commitment to diversity plays a direct role into the, you know, pedagogy or research in, in these domains. Okay. But now, Let's, you know, what I'm more willing to defend, and maybe before I defend it, I want to hear your, your take on it. What if instead of it being a kind of a stepwise selection process, it is a process uh, where each of the three criteria, so the criteria being um, research, teaching, and now diversity commitment are treated, you know, you know, equally or the some formula, 40, 40, 20, you decide what the 20 is, um, like what about that? And again, maybe there'll be a lot of people who, again, could be Nobel Prize winners, but because their diversity statements are no good or because they said things that were, you know, even uh, racist, uh, like they're eliminated. I, I know the racist part. That's going to be hard, pretty much nobody. But uh, so what do you think about that? I mean, I, there there have been racist Nobel Prize winners in the past. So it's a, that is true. Yeah, <laughs> it's not, that's a bad example. Right? Not entirely crazy, right? Um so it so what you're saying is like let's say you integrate it holistically with lots of other criteria. Then I would say like I don't object to that per se. A lot depends on exactly how it's done. Like how how big of a weight do you give to it? Um how do you do that in a way that's kind of principled and systematic? And then I think really importantly um what are your criteria for what's a good diversity statement? And it seems just from reading over some of these materials produced by the Berkeley Diversity Office, this is not at all subtly about a certain ideological agenda, right? So if you go in there and you write about like, you know, I did a lot of outreach to, uh, I don't know, poor kids in Appalachia or whatever, it's not what they want, right? They they specifically mention you're supposed to talk about race and gender. So I, I think that that was part of my discomfort with it is that while it is, I think, important to think about diversity and how you serve underserved groups, um, this seems to be a way of enforcing a very specific approach to that and seems to be mainly an ideological filter. So we don't want anybody who thinks differently than we do about these issues. Right. So... Okay, so I, I again, I'm having a very tough time like mustering a, a, a defense here, but I'm going to try my best. Um, okay, so there are certain groups in our society that have been historically stigmatized, historically not receiving their fair share. Um, and, you know, off the top of my head, you know, it's black people in the United States, uh, women, uh, period, uh, in North America, not just the United States. Um, and maybe those are the groups we should be focusing on in terms of... And I don't, I don't mean this uh, literally, but reparations, you know, correcting for past injustices and over-selecting from them because of, uh, again, past injustices, past like overt mistreatment uh, or subtle mistreatment. So, you know, it's a blunt tool, 
but we this is the group we're targeting and, th and this is the group we want to um to have increasing representation among our faculty ranks because frankly we want our faculty ranks to uh, reflect our student ranks or, or at least the, the, the ranks of our, our maybe a society more largely so you're right you're going to miss uh, you know i might add a third group in there if i if i was in charge and, and that third group would be poor people okay i think poor people also you know um are stigmatized and uh, get raw deals and are stuck in these cycles. So I would add that third group uh, in there. Uh, but and, and then maybe I, I, you know maybe this is being me being intersectionalist. But I would say like you know and, and if you have like all you know two or three you know if you're poor and black especially that that would be you know something you know I'd want to to, to elevate you as much as I can, you know um, and. I, I would aim my like policies towards elevating these sorts of groups. Now, again, it's a blunt tool. It's not. It's not going to catch you know every form of diversity. It's certainly not going to catch intellectual diversity or not intellectual. Sorry, uh, political diversity. I should say. Um, but why not? Why not try to elevate these people? And 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 then uh, uh, you know I guess that the bigger issue is uh, should that be weighted at all. And if, and if at all, how much in faculty hiring for a discipline that is, again, teaching chemistry, teaching biology, et cetera? Right. Well, first of all, uh, I have to say I appreciate your efforts at uh, playing devil's advocate. And uh, that's very nice of you. Um, I mean, I feel like what you're describing is affirmative action. Um, and I think in some cases that's totally appropriate. Right. Um, and I, I know that, you know, in our hiring, we do think about um, represent, representation. Um, I know we've had conversations about, you know, that we're as a social personality area, quite white. We have very few non-white faculty or at UTSC, our undergraduate student body is like 75% non-white, right? And like, that's a bit weird. And we'd like to have people who the students could look at and be like, oh, that person looks like me if only in, you know, um, background and skin color. Um, and so it doesn't even have to be from a reparation standpoint is, is my point. There can be like good reasons to say like, yeah, we want a more diverse faculty. Um, and I, I, I find that compelling, but that's not what this is, right? So if you're a black person who doesn't believe that uh, affirmative action is a good idea, who says, for example, like, well, I want to be evaluated based on my work, not my skin color, which is not unheard of for some black people to think that you're cut by this metric, right? So what they are selecting for is not diversity of background or even um, identity characteristics. They're selecting for believing in, endorsing, and enacting a certain ideology. Yeah, you're right. So that's different than what I was defending, which is, you know, actual hiring practices. This is like, I can hire a white rich dude um, and add old in there if you want to add like the, the not the trifecta, what's the four version of that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure, but um, but as long as they they speak these you know the the, the, the you know the correct language and and, and talk the talk, um, their diversity statement would pass muster. Um, That's right. That's right. Now, in in fact, you know, if you look at the demographics of candidates who survived each stage, what this did do is it boosted the percentage of non-white and non-male candidates in the pool, right? So it actually, the effect was that they were selecting more of um, these underrepresented groups. Um, now, under California law, you're not at all allowed to use those characteristics in um, in hiring. So it, it may be a illegal, actually. But like leaving that aside, like that's, you know, a California specific thing, like from a moral standpoint, 
for like, okay, this increases minority representation. I'd say that's good, but I think there's more direct ways to do that. If that's what we want to do, right? Why have a process by which, at least in theory, there could be a white male who's like, I've led a ton of diversity workshops, gets a great score on this, passes the filter, whereas a black woman who's like, I just focused on doing my work, who gets cut. That seems crazy. Right. That, that, that does seem crazy. Yeah, because you're selecting on ideas. You're selecting on having the quote-unquote correct ideas. Um there's yeah. just something creepy about that. It's, it's, right? it's a bit of it's dangerous, right? Because right now this might be an idea that that we agree with. Yeah, we want the, there to be more representation, but you know, um, what if it's a different idea uh, one day? Yeah, I'm I'm having a challenge uh, uh, actually defending this as a sensible idea. You know, you've you've done a great job. I would be curious. You know, if any of our listeners think that this is defensible, like I really want to know. Like I'm I'm legitimately curious who thinks that this is a good idea because. Uh, you know, the UC Berkeley group, they definitely seem to think this was a good idea. They wrote up this report about it. They were very proud of how it worked out, right? And it didn't seem to occur to them that it was problematic to privilege this criterion, which is really about, do you have the right ideology over everything else? I'm with you. Like, I would love to, in this case, to hear from listeners who... On moral grounds and, and, and in the ideal setting, not not as a, as a subterfuge, as a way to like actually select for, for race and gender, but like on moral grounds to defend this idea because I'm having trouble defending it like this specific version of it. Um, so I'd love to hear that. Right. Right. So please let us know. OK, so this seems like a great spot to take our break and uh, switch to an even more intense beer. Hello, listeners. You all here. So this week, for the first time, we're trying something new, which is that we have a sponsor for this week's episode. That sponsor is The Great Courses Plus. So you might be asking, what is that? Well, it's an educational streaming service that makes learning easy and accessible with thousands of lectures on practically any topic you can think of. So that means you can get objective, in-depth information from some of the best teachers in the world on pretty much any topic you might be interested in. With The Great Courses Plus, you don't have to make time to learn because it fits into your schedule anytime or anywhere. So you can Look at the lectures, uh, there's videos available, or if you prefer, you can just listen. You can do that on your computer or on your mobile device. So as part of this sponsorship, um, The Great Courses Plus gave us uh, access to the site so we could check it out. And uh, a course that I really enjoyed is the Everyday Guide to Beer, where I finally learned the difference between a lager and an ale. Uh, this is a course, it's presented by Charles Bamforth. He's a professor at Davis. He's an advisor to the Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Uh, more importantly, he's a old British dude with a really amazing accent. He's from the North, so he sounds super Scottish to me. So he's both knowledgeable, uh, but also just really fun to listen to. So if you, uh, like us, might like to know more about beer, uh, that would be a course to check out. So if this is something that interests you, uh, there is a great offer that they are going to give to our listeners, which is that you get a full month for free. So if you go to our special URL, which is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash beers, you get a month free. So if uh, if you're interested, again, the URL is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash beers. That will also be in the show notes. So uh, with that, back to our show. 
Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. So we're on Twitter at Four Beers Pod. You can DM us or you can at mention us, and we both check that account. If you'd rather email, uh, fourbeerspod at gmail.com is our email address, and uh, we both check that as well. Finally, uh, our website, fourbeers.fireside.fm, where you can listen to all of our episodes and you can drop us a line there as well using the contact form that, again, will go to both of us. Um, if you're enjoying the show, please do rate and review us on. Um, iTunes, it helps other people discover the show, and uh, it also makes us happy to read those reviews. Uh, Mickey, do you uh, do you have some follow-up or something you want to acknowledge? Uh, yeah, so, you know, we still are getting uh, quite a few emails every once in a while, you know, since the um, uh, general generalizability crisis episodes, it seems to, that, that one seems to have resonated with a lot of people, and I heard from um, one of my absolute best friends from graduate school, uh, Sohan Amarasingham, um, uh, who we went, we went to, we were at Brown together. He's a mathematician, and uh, he had lots of comments on the the, the episode. He had trouble with uh, with the the difference between the induction and deduction point I was trying to make. I think a lot of people had trouble, and by trouble I don't mean he didn't understand it. It probably because you know the argument is incoherent. You're saying he was too dumb to follow your brilliant argument. <laughs> Not at all, because you know Han uh, is uh, you know. Probably the smartest uh, person I've ever, you know, been friends with. Uh, just a brilliant guy. Um, so it's probably my uh, either the point is incorrect or my description of the point was uh, incoherent. But nonetheless, he he listened carefully, and I think uh, some of the points resonated with him uh, deeply. And I appreciated, you know, the email. And we've, you know, since had a back and forth uh, about it. So thank you, Han, for commenting, and thank you all listeners for. Uh, emails you send us, we really do appreciate them. Sometimes we can't give, you know, um, the same length of answer as, you know, the emails that we receive. Uh, and that's not because we don't read the emails or don't care about the emails. It's just that, you know, we have, uh, there's only a couple of us and a lot of you. Um, but we really appre appreciate the emails. So uh, keep them coming. Yeah, please do. Oh, uh, I'm reminded, actually, there was one more piece of follow up that I had, which is we were talking in the Christmas episode about Tim Hortons. And I think I mentioned that the Tim Hortons on campus is super popular. And uh, one of the undergraduates who's doing some work in my lab said the reason it's so popular or at any rate, she said the reason I go there is it's like literally half the price of anything else on campus for like lunch, you know, so like Tim Hortons would be like five bucks and the campus, you know, restaurants or whatever would be like 10 minutes. So I will say that for Tim Hortons, it is dirt cheap, you know, like Timbits. It's like two dollars and you get like, I don't know, 50. Even homeless people can afford Tim Hortons. <laughs> As I was reminded on the drive here, I was like, this woman who was um, clearly not well uh, was uh, had a fresh cup of coffee in her hand. So it does fit in every budget. And, uh, you know, you got to give them that. OK, so uh, second half of our show. Oh, beer. Right. I always forget. So what is this crazy thing that we're drinking? Yes, yeah, so we're drinking uh, something new. This is um, again, this is from Indie Pale House, this uh, delightful uh, brew pub uh, in the junction. And this beer is called, uh, you know, Dolce Tiramisu Pastry Stout. And the gentleman uh, who's at the um, the bottle shop at the Indie Pale House, gentleman from Newcastle, England, uh, was like going on and on and on about this beer. Uh, and I think this is our first uh, 
beer of a certain complexion. This is our first dark beer, uh, first stout. I don't think we've had a porter yet. Uh, some have accused us of being shadist. Um, so he was going on and on about it, and the name was delightful, a tiramisu pastry stout. I mean, who, that sounds delicious, right? Here's the description. Uh, coffee, chocolate, vanilla, bourbon, and lactose. Sweet and strong, velvety and rich chocolate dessert with cream and coffee notes. Share with a friend. You are my friend, Yoel. Oh, that, that makes me happy. What uh, alcohol percentage yeah, this is this? Yeah, this is 9.5. Uh, so this will be, uh, this will leave us, uh, I think it will make us more lucid for the second half. Yes, this is only going to improve us. Cheers. Cheers. It is really good. Yeah. I'm into re- it. It, it. It is yummy, yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So I think for the, 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 the you know, we're actually going to go, we're actually going to talk about science for the second half. I know. Crazy. And how crazy a podcast is kind of about science where we didn't talk about science at all up until now. But now we will talk science. So um, and actually, I think this is really kind of what started, uh, you know, this idea of a grab bag episode was that a couple of, you know, a couple of things emerged in the past, you know, week or two. Um, they all were kind of interesting, but small. So we're like, let's put them all together. So uh, the, the first item of, of business is we're going to discuss um, something called a Many Labs 4, and actually a, res- a rejoinder to Many Labs 4. So just a tiny bit of background, um, what the Many Labs projects are. These are projects uh, where uh, an organizer puts together a group of, of, of many labs around the world, in this case, they were just around the United States, to work on a project together, typically a replication, although it doesn't have to be a replication, but I think in the past, they've all been replications. And... In this specific many labs, um, they were they had a very interesting question. The question here was, to what extent does expertise matter in being able to replicate an effect? Because some people have proposed, I think very sensibly, that one needs expertise, one needs knowledge, uh, maybe kind of like background knowledge, hidden knowledge, tacit knowledge, to get some of these subtle effects to work. And just because someone replicates an effect but doesn't understand the kind of the secret sauce to get the effect doesn't mean that that replication is, is not meaningful because they don't have the expertise. So Many Labs 4 was essentially a test of this idea. What if we got a... Um, a, a replicable effect, one that is not controversial. And we then got um, uh, uh, one team of people or a group of people who were informed by experts who were told exactly what the secret sauce is, exactly what paradigm to use. They would try to replicate an effect versus a second team that was naive. They still have the original replication paper, but they aren't kind of given this tacit knowledge. And then to compare these two. And by the way, before I go any further, I should say... Uh, the Black Goat podcast, and we're huge fans of that podcast. Um, they have a fantastic episode, I think one of their better ones of late, um, covering uh, Many Labs 4 in greater detail than we're going to be able to cover today. So if you want to understand the background and the, and, and the questions about it, you know, listen to that podcast, and we'll put a link in, in show notes. Um, now, so we're not going to actually, other than just kind of the, the, the nuts and bolts, we're not going to talk too much about the actual implications of, uh, of this uh, Many Labs, more about the rejoinder. So, but very, very quickly, to summarize Many Labs 4, um, they tried to replicate an effect 
uh, from Terror Management Theory, which is a prominent, albeit controversial theory in social psychology that was popular in the you know, mid to late 90s until, let's say, the early 2000s. I, I, I don't see much work going on in that area anymore, or not much at least. Um, but they try to replicate uh, one specific classic finding that's been cited nearly 1,000 times, a paper by Study One from uh, Greenberg, Pazinski, Solomon, Simon, and Bruce. Bros. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, that was published in 1994. And... I don't want to get into too many details, but the, the, specific, the specifics of the study involve uh, mortality salience. The idea here is that um, humans, uh, well, we all die. All animals die. Humans are aware that we die. And when, we, be, when we, we become aware of our own death, that one, you know, one day we will die, we think about that and contemplate that, that leads to terror. It leads to, you know, uh, paralyzing terror. And one way we can buffer against this terror is to affirm certain things. We can affirm the value of the self. So that would be, you know, one function of self-esteem, according to terror management theories, that it buffers against um, thoughts of our own impending uh, death. And a second one is that um, we affirm the culture to which we belong. Um, so we'll engage in defense of a specific worldview. Um, that's it. That's all I'm going to talk about for terror management theory. Now, in Many Labs 4, they uh, tried to replicate this classic effect. They got experts in, uh, in half the studies, non-experts who just tried to replicate naively, just looking at the actual original uh, paper. Um, long story short, they could not replicate the paper, uh, replicate the original finding. Neither the experts nor the um, naive or, you know, group lacking expertise could replicate the basic finding. Okay, so it's kind of a bummer because they couldn't actually even test this notion of expertise to what extent it can moderate things. But it more or less fits with the, the general pattern of findings that social psychology is a mess and a lot of our findings might be false positives. And here is one example of another false positive, potentially. Um, and I think unlike with many other replications, I think people might be less surprised with this outcome with terror management theory because... I think it was always greeted with some suspicion um, by certain circles. It was always greeted as a kind of outlandish, out there theory. Um, e this is even pre-replication crisis. People thought it was kind of kooky and didn't make too much sense. Um, so it wasn't as surprising as other, let's say, failures of replication. Okay, that's it for the summary of any Labs 4. Now, the rejoinder. The rejoinder, I, I think you all, you and I both found it interesting because... It suggested, hey, everybody, uh, not so fast. Um, Many Labs 4 was pre-registered. Um, they had a recipe that they were supposed to follow. Um, but in fact, they did not follow their own pre-registration protocols. Um, and they deviated from their protocols and they didn't reveal their deviations from their protocols um, in, in, in a couple of dimensions. But there's one especially uh, a noteworthy dimension, and that is, and it's right there in the, in, in the original Many Labs 4, um, that is that many, uh, uh, each and every lab needed to collect no fewer than 80 participants. So it was a two-celled study, uh, and again, the, you know, uh, uh, you know, a mortality salient in one condition, a control, you know, thinking about a TV show, I think, or something like that, um, in, in, in the control condition, 
40, 40 participants per cell. That was the minimum and hopefully more than that. And the rationale is that anything fewer than that would be too small and the estimates derived from any one of those labs would be uninformative because it would be, it would be so noisy. And that, and I did reread many labs four, and in fact, that's right there. It's very, very clear. Um, but it turns out that, the, you know, many labs four did in fact include uh, a, a decent number, you know, close to 40% of the labs that were included in the final analysis actually had fewer than 80 participants. So they deviated from their own pre-registration, you know, uh, commitments. Um, and, and this is where it gets interesting when they, in fact, uh, uh, you know, and I should say, you know, I, I should say I give the authors of the, the rejoinder. Um, so the, the, the rejoinder authors are uh, Armand Chattard, Gilad Hirschen, Hirschberger and Tom Pazinski. Uh, and the rejoinder is called a word of caution about many labs Four: if you fail to follow your pre-registered plan, you may fail to find a real effect. And I think that title says it all. Um, once they actually followed their plan to a T, that is excluding labs who did not provide enough data, they were able to replicate an effect. And I should also say, because one thing you might all be thinking is, well, replicating a fact where I think there's over 2,000 participants here, like that could, you could find a, a significant effect with, you know, that's really, really small, maybe not so meaningful. But, you know, the original authors, uh, and this is, um, the original authors are, it's led by Richard Klein, many labs for, um, they pre-specified in their pre-registration that what they mean by replication is P less than 0.05, Okay, but also a Cohen's D of no smaller than D of 0.1. Okay, so they said that that that's their smallest effect size of interest. Okay, and according to um, again this rejoinder uh, by Chatard et al. Um, once they excluded the people who should have been excluded, they were able, in fact, to find not only were they able to find an overall effect for t for mortality salience that was not only significant, but had an effect that was larger than than, than a G, not D, but a G of 0.1. Um, they also found moderation by expertise. So this is a really kind of interesting, you know, uh, example here where, you know, typically pre-registration is, you know, it's always used to. I guess, cut out experimental degrees of freedom. And it seems here uh, that many labs four might have not, you know, kind of um, been strict enough with their own pre-registration plan. And one could argue, as others have argued, that um, they abuse replicator degrees of freedom. I mean, does that seem plausible? Like, does anybody think that they looked at the data and we're like, oh, no, this looks good for TMT. Let's real quick include these other labs that we said we weren't going to include. I mean, this has to be just a human error, right? Like they wrote this exclusion criteria and they forgot to code it or something, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, I don't, I don't, think, that, I don't think they would have done that. But I think the same burden of proof that you're talking about could be used when, when, when things don't replicate. So I think... The, these registration plans are there and people often impute motives in people who don't follow the registration plans or if there are no registration plans, they, they, they impute poor motives. So here I am and I, I, don't, I don't want to impute poor motives, but let's, for the, for the sake of argument, let's do that, right? 
it, you know, with the sh- you know, I think we, we, it happens that we have to be consistent here, and I think people are often quick to to uh, infer motive. So I don't think this happened, but it is what it is. Right. So absolutely, they should follow the plan that they pre-registered, right? And I, just to clarify, I thought there was some confusion about whether it was eighty or sixty, what the cutoff was. Yes, right. So there was some confusion. I mean, I did read the many labs for, and in fact, uh, they did say eighty. Okay, but in the rejoinder, they I, I guess there was some hedging, and um, in fact, they reanalyzed it with both criteria. Uh, so with an 80 cutoff or a 60 cutoff, and it survives both. Now, I just want to say one thing before we get too far, and that is that, um, and this is what's so cool about open science, and it's amazing that this can happen. Um, apparently, Joe Hilgard um, uh, looked at uh, some of these uh, forest plots and noticed... Uh, one lab that looked like, you know, had had an effect size that's outlandish. It was like a D of over 1.5, which is like huge, which is still possible with small samples. But this is not a small sample anymore. This is now at least 80 or 60. Um, and he went in and dug into the original data and spotted a coding error. Okay. And once the coding error was corrected, nothing changes. Okay, nothing changes. So you reanalyze, you reanalyze with the pre-registered, you know, plan or the non-pre-registered plan. The results are the same. But I, I think that's much, much less interesting, right? So I think you know, in terms of the actual truth, it seems like the many labs for in, in either case is not looking good. Wait, so so just to be clear, that the take home is once you correct this mistake. It doesn't matter whether you exclude these labs that collected too few participants or not. The results are the same, and the results are always no effect of condition, no moderation by uh, whether they got expert advice or not. Exactly. Is that right? Okay. That's exactly right. So it kind of makes this a moot point now. Like, so so this, this rejoinder... I think is dead in the vine because of this error. And I think the error, I don't think it's, I don't think it's uh Chatard's error. It might be the original author's error. Um, I think, um, I mean, you know, looking at this kind of quickly, um, but, I, but it makes it a little bit less interesting, interesting to discuss, right? Cause it's just an error. So fuck it. Who cares? We don't, we can ignore this, but let's pretend it, it wasn't an error. Right. So what do we think of, um, this notion of because essentially what what these authors are saying is by excluding more data just so that we can follow the pre-registration recipe um, to you know to be handcuffed by the pre-registration and lo and behold we get we we actually get an effect um, and it seems like a kind of an interesting case here where here pre-registration actually kind of you know, maybe it was a poor idea to begin with, but it actually kind of uh, moves this effect across, you know, some sort of significance threshold. Yeah, I, I do think that's a super interesting question, right? Because they pre-registered, we're going to do X. And what if it turns out now that X is a bad idea, right? So I would say if you're tossing everything into a meta-analysis, why exclude labs who only collected 40 Right? Why throw away data? Because then meta-analysis is going to take into account that the estimates from smaller samples are more uncertain, right? That's part of what it's supposed to do. So why have this exclusion criterion at all? I would think it's kind of ill-advised to do that. On the other hand, they did pre-register that they were going to do it and they should follow it. So I would distinguish between what you do in the paper 
which is like, yeah, you should follow what you pre-registered. Even if you later realize it's a bad idea, you should at least say, we pre-registered this. Here's the analysis doing this. And now, you know, maybe you want to look at it another way because we realize that this is a bad way to, to look at it. But in terms of like what we think the truth is, I don't think it matters what they wrote down, right? Like if they wrote down something that we later decide is a bad idea, like that shouldn't have an effect on what we think actually the reality is, right? Okay, but 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 it, it all hinges on this notion of a bad idea, what we deem is a bad idea. And after we've seen the data, what we think is a bad idea changes, okay? And I, you know, to be frank, I agree with you. I, I, I think actually more data makes more sense here in this case. But, you know, you and I are in agreement about like, you know, <laughs> psychology kind of being fucked. And to us, this affirms our worldview. You know, we, you know, in a way we want TMT to be falsified, right? Because, you know, it affirms our view that social psychology is a mess. But now if you're coming at it from a different point of view, um, and you think social psychology is healthy and good and we've got real effects out there, you know, you might think this is a, you know, this is a perfect good idea and you can justify it to yourself post hoc. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I guess that's where you have to have the argument, like, I guess, to a hypothetical audience of neutral observers who don't have a strong prior commitment. Like, do they do they give a strong justification for why in the meta-analysis context it makes sense to exclude these smaller samples because I realize I'm biased. Although here, you know, honestly, like I, if they had gotten a TMT effect, like it, I would have been like, okay, like I, do, I, I don't think it's crazy. Right. So I'm not like, it's, it's not like uh, the uh, elderly priming, the slow walking thing, for example, where I'm like, no effing way. Right. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah maybe if it's small, I can see it. So I, I don't feel like I have that much of an ideological commitment either way, although like people are bad at that sort of self-insight. So let's not take that too seriously. But like on first principles, can you make an argument that says if you're just going to combine this meta analytically anyway, you should be kicking out some of these samples like it, I, I just don't I, I literally don't get it. OK, so I mean, like I said, I agree with you. I actually think you know, keeping in the small samples makes sense, actually. Like, we just, they're, they're going to be noisy. They'll be super noisy estimates. But as you said, this will be taken into account into the, you know, random effects meta-analysis. So it's already there. So why exclude them? Okay. But now let's imagine a different scenario. Okay. Now, and this is not hypothetical because I, without revealing too much, I am part of a project where kind of the kind of reverse happens. And in this scenario, the pre-registration, um, uh, it booted out a lot of people. Okay, booted out a lot of people, and uh, and and then you know and, and then we, we you know we follow the pre-registration, um, and we don't find an effect for whatever. Um, but once we include everybody, all of a sudden the effect emerges. Okay, and. Well, what's what's to do there, right? And and, and I, I think the one difference, you know, and again, I'm biased, so you have to you have to you know kind of you you know filter for that. Um, I think the pre the pre registration exclusion criteria of this study that I'm talking about make made a lot more sense than than what it is over here in many labs for. Um, so the exclusion criteria were like, did you pass the manipulation check? Did you you know were there kind of like sanity checks in there? Like, were you paying attention? Um, but the exclusion criteria were maybe in hindsight a bit too severe because 40% of the sample was, was taken out. 
Like a big percent of the sample was taken out, right? So one could argue that, well, maybe we were, we were overzealous. We, we, we just miscalibrated what we thought was correct, right? But, ne- but and, and, and it's a very, without revealing too much, it's a very controversial topic, right? So you and I, um, we both think this thing doesn't exist, okay? And with a pre-registered plan, it doesn't exist. But with a non-pre-registered plan where you're including, four, you're adding 40% more of a sample, all of a sudden it passes the P less than 0.05 threshold. Yeah. I mean, I, I take your point that like once you've seen the results, you're tainted by what you want to believe is true, right? Um, and I don't think there's any getting around that. And then at that point, you just have to say like, well, does it, how sensible does this seem? Like, is it theoretically reasonable to say, you know, if we include all these people, maybe we would expect that we would get the effect when excluding them doesn't show it? Or is it just like, well, there's no reason to expect that, right? So like, for example, if like, uh, you are excluding people who literally don't remember what the manipulation was. And then you're like, oh, but if I put them in, it works. It's like, well, what does that mean? Like, they've like, <laughs> you know what, on what grounds would you think that things would work better when you include this? So then it really depends on the details, I would say. Um, so then we're right back to the land of like arguing about, you know, is it reasonable or not? And I think ultimately, like you can't get away from that, right? Like the pre-registration helps you a bit with, forcing you to like state things ahead of time but there's always well the door is always open for later being like oh well was that the best choice and like let's say that we make a different choice and now we get a different result and then you have to i i think there's no substitute for judgment in the end and i i guess i would say like look if the people who are arguing for well it really we really should be including this 40 percent who gets kicked out for example like then the onus is on them to actually demonstrate that this whatever it is moderates it or something right to, to actually show that it's reproducible um then i would believe it yeah so i i mean I, yeah i think i yeah you make a good point you you, you still you're not going to be able to get away from human judgment here there has to be some judgment call my fear in this case, with Many Labs 4 and the case that I'm describing that I can't give too many details about, um, is that human judgment is going to end up being tribal. Just like Republicans can, you know, uh, not see any impeachable, you know, a- a- any grounds to impeach Donald Trump. Um, I think people who are you know, for the status quo will always vote along quote unquote party lines and people who are open science are also going to vote along party lines. Um, I think it's maybe not quite as polarized as, as U.S. politics, but I do think this tribalism enters judgment even here. And that's my fear. So it depends who your reviewers are. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess the the one other thing to talk about about this is like, let's say that you um, forget about the coding error stuff. You say like, look, if you do things the way the pre-registration says, then you get this significant but very small effect of the manipulation. And then what do you make of the fact that the effect is very small? Um, and on this point, uh, just recently, there was a preprint posted of a paper by Roy Baumeister, where he argues um, that effect sizes from laboratory experiments are essentially meaningless, except for as what he calls them is shop talk, 
right? So basically that you can't generalize the effect size from a lab experiment to uh, the effect size that you would expect in the real world. And you can't really use the effect size as a proxy for importance because he says, you know, the effect size could be inflated by the fact that we specifically design the situation in order to create the maximum size effect. Or it could be deflated by, let's say, we have practical or ethical reasons that we can't give a manipulation that's as strong as the thing that it's supposed to be uh, representing in the real world. And um, I actually found this uh, piece because Daniel Lockins posted um, his review of a previous version of this. Um, and I actually, like, I, I saw a lot to like about the Baumeister piece. Um, I, I, Lockins was quite negative about it in his review. He actually, like, I read his review and it seemed like it was responding to things that Baumeister ended up taking out. So it's funny, like, it it does seem to have, like, affected uh, what Baumeister chose to do. Um, but anyway, uh, taking the piece, like, as it was in the preprint, like, I think that's very reasonable. Like, and I think people, I, I've recently argued something similar that people get caught up in these arguments about like, what's the effect size of um, implicit attitudes? And it's like, that's not a meaningful number unless you're yourself trying to design an experiment to test this. Now, here's where I would say like effect sizes are important though, is if this big replication shows that the effect is so small that there's just no way you would have been able to detect it using, you know, your N of 20 per condition experiments, then that should like raise some questions, right? How did we get all these positive results if the, the effect size using this exact paradigm, right, is tiny? And I get the point of like, there's going to be some shrinkage. You're doing this internationally. You're doing it in different labs. Like, okay, so maybe it's half, okay? But if it's like 10%, Right. Then you should be like, wait a minute. Right. That doesn't add up. Right. Yeah. Um, brilliant segue, by the way. Thank um, you. I, you know, I, I feel like we've gotten a little better at podcasting. <laughs> yes. Right. <laughs> um, so and actually, maybe should I add as a little bit of context. And I feel like we're not uh, breaking any confidence here. Um, these arguments aren't new to you and I, because we had a an aborted podcast with Roy Baumeister um, where he made these uh, same arguments, um, where he was saying essentially that effect sizes um, aren't really meaningful, and you know, so I didn't read the preprint, but I but I but I've been exposed to the arguments, and I think like I. I like like you. I think I more or less agree that it's not quite as important as we think. I think it's important in 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 a few places. Number one, in in, in applied work. So, and I think Baumeister says the same thing, right? Um, in applied work, you're actually so clinical clinical psychology, for example. You want to know the you know how impactful therapy A is versus B versus placebo. That effect size actually is meaningful. It's it, it's a it's a meaningful number there. Um, like, especially if we're looking at the outcomes or like alleviations of symptoms, for example. Um, so that's actually meaningful. Um, uh, but it's much less meaningful in an ex experimental context. I agree with that. Where I think it is meaningful, although what you said gives me a little bit of pause, um, is isn't, shouldn't we care if a study is, you know, smaller than some whatever number we decide? So... Some people talk about, you know, smallest effect size of interest, right? So shouldn't we decide a priori what that number is? And I think whatever the, depending on the outcome, that number could differ. Um, and once we've, before seeing the data, um, 
isn't that one dimension where we care about like you know, anything less than a D of, you know, in the, in the many labs four, they said anything less than a, a D of point one is not meaningful. I, I, I might quibble with that, with that number. I'm not sure where they got point one. I would say anything less than point two is not meaningful. Um, whatever, that's what they decided. So isn't that one case where effect sizes are, are, are important? No, you know, I don't think so. Um, I think you might say, look, if the effect is D of point one, it's just too hard to study. Like we're going to need such massive numbers of participants in order to get this reliably that like I quit. And I've certainly like done that in my own research. But like, let's say somebody is willing to devote the resources. I think there can be small effects that are nonetheless theoretically super important. Um, so let's say like somebody demonstrates ESP. And it's a very weak effect, but it is 100% statistically reliable, pre-registered, comes out D of 0.05 or something. I'm like, wow, that like really should cause us to revise our theories of like how time works or how the brain works or whatever, even if it's tiny. Yeah, that's a good example of one that we should really, really care about. But I, I can think of very, very few where anything less than 0.1 or 0.2 really matters. I mean, I, I think to some extent... Baumeister and many, many others are treating studies as, as existence proofs. And I think that, correct me if I'm wrong, the argument is here is like, all we want to do is show that X can happen. Okay. And therefore the effect size doesn't matter. Like I'm just trying to confirm a theory or a not, you know, uh, have a theory survive uh, falsification, if you will. Um, and that's all I care about. But if it's so, so small, I mean, it's technically an existence proof. An existence proof is just like, it has to exist one time and one time only. But don't we want it to be at least somewhat generalizable or somewhat more meaningful? I guess I'm not satisfied with it with a purely existence proof. And I think I think that's that's pretty much the only reason why you don't care about effect sizes. Yeah, so this, this actually came up in my discussion with Dave and Tamler. Sorry to, <laughs> to remind you. Um, nightmares, um, Matt. Yeah, I know. Nightmares here. I know. Um, so I, I, I think that my opinion is that this is something where people uh, often try and have it both ways. So they will write in the paper, at least in the general discussion, in a very guarded way of all I am doing, all we're doing is showing that under certain circumstances, A can affect B, right? And if that is literally all you are doing, then existence proof is fine, right? But then they turn around and they want to write the gray matter column or they want to give a quote or they want to write a popular book and give a talk. And then all of a sudden there's this slippage such that it's like, well, we've explained why this happens in your life. It's like, no, you haven't. And if you're really taking seriously this idea of all we're doing is showing existence proofs or, you know, testing deductions from a certain like theoretical perspective, that we would be a lot more cautious. Like when the reporter calls us, we'd be like, oh, no, I haven't shown that at all. All I've shown that is that in this specific lab task, using these specific measures, and it's very artificial that we get this, right? And it, that's not what most people do. Most people are like, oh, yeah, no, this absolutely relates to why you feel like you want to eat a bunch of cookies after work or whatever. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So it seems like we're, yeah, I mean, this idea of existence proof, I think, is kind of interesting, right? Because that is the, you know, I know we've kind of gone back and forth with the, you know, induction versus deduction. Um, but that's all you need for, for deductive, the deductive method. It's just like to show that it exists. But I don't know. Like, it's like showing it once really enough. I mean, yes, technically it's correct for an existence proof. But 
I guess I'm I'm not convinced that's actually what we're doing here. We're not really deductive. Um, yeah, it, it almost seems like an example of the method not giving you the answer that you want. And we use it anyway because it's what we've been taught. So null hypothesis, significance testing, right? It's always presuming that your hypothesis is right. How unlikely would it be for you to observe this result, right? And what we that's usually not what we want to know, right? We want to know, like, conditional on observing this, how likely is it that my hypothesis is true? And it doesn't tell us that, right? right? And in the same way, this existence proofy stuff says, like, in its very strict hypothesis testing framework, you know, um, it, if the theory makes this prediction and it's disconfirmed, then we're less confident of it. And but we observe this, so therefore it survived this test. But what we often really want to know is like, well, in the real world, you know, why do people do this? And it's like, well, it doesn't tell us that at all. Like, at, not without a bunch of extra work that, as far as I can see, like doesn't typically happen. Right. Right. Yeah. That 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 that's totally true. So, okay. One other point I want to make about kind of a, a thought I had about this this idea of a vex size is not mattering. Um, and I've heard this argument from other people, not just uh, Baumeister. Um, now, in an experimental context uh, where we have so much control over every variable, uh, I mean, shouldn't our effect sizes be massive? Right, because we're controlling everything out. Everything is like controlled out. They're like small differences, but we're kind of maximizing them. We're also designing our dependent variables to be especially sensitive to, you know, at least we think they're sensitive to our our our, our independent variables. So our effects should be big, bigger, um, if anything. Um, so again, I would say that you know having kind of a minimal threshold, like you know, if it's lower than this. I don't, I, I, I don't care anymore. Um, and uh, if it's bigger than great, it exists, and that's all I care about. Right. Uh, you know, I think it so much depends on what you're studying. So I think there's a lot of contexts in which the thing that you're doing in the lab is like a very pale imitation of the thing that you actually care about in real life. So if you're studying emotions, for example, it might be like right about a time somebody made you angry. Right. And that, that's very different from even from being cut off in traffic. Right. It's like this a recollection of a thing. And it, it I would expect those effects to be a lot smaller than the effects of like the actual emotion when you really experience it in life. And maybe in part that's on us for running a bunch of studies where, you know, we don't kind of put people into these super involving situations. We just mm -hmm. ask them to like remember something. Um so, yeah, I, I don't know. I like a priori. I don't think it's safe to say like, well, the lab effects should be bigger. Yeah, that, that 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 is fair, um, but even there, right about the time you've been angry, um, hopefully you're picking a dependent variable that is maximally sensitive to that thing. Um, I think I think I think you're right. In in normal life, right time right about the time you're angry in your diary, that's probably not going to affect the way you deal with your kids or your spouse or anything like that. But if you are designing a dependent variable that again, hopefully is sensitive to that manipulation, you should get something, something that you can see, I would think. Well, yeah, it's just, I I just don't know if ahead of time you can say like, oh, the lab effects should be bigger. Like, yeah, of course, you're going to choose the DV that you expect or hope or have some evidence to say will let the effect be as big as possible. But I, I don't know that overall, like we're in these experiments trying to create a representation of the thing that we care about in the world. 
it, should we expect those effects to be on average bigger than in the real life situation? Like, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I just don't see any reason for believing that to be true as a rule, I guess. Now, can we just walk back a tiny bit? And that is, um, let's talk about maybe we're imputing motives here. Um, but certainly part of the motive you know, that you know, that that kind of moved Roy to write something like this is that ego depletion, this this thing that he's become very, very well known about, well known for. Um, you know, it might, you know, it's probably not significant, but it might be, but even if it is, is you know, an effect size, it's really, really, really small. What if I told you the effect size is 0. 0.05? And we listen to Roy Baumas' argument about effects sizes don't matter. All you need to know is it crosses some threshold. So, therefore, ego depletion exists. Um, everyone's good. Yeah, D of 0.05. Uh, so, uh, and hmm. I take your point. A, that's really hard to study, right? So, we're talking about, like, if we take that seriously, we need, like, 3,000 participants per experiment. Secondly, you know, eco depletion is one of those areas where people wrote popular books, people wrote popular press pieces, people gave quotes, and it was like, we're going to explain real things about you. And I think that if you take this, the lab effect sizes don't matter that much seriously, like it does uh, entail that we need to do a lot more work to translate what happens in the lab to we're going to say something about what happens in real life. And I think that's just true in principle. And I guess where you might fault Roy is for saying like, okay, we, these things that are true about lab effect sizes now entail these other things about how we should be talking about these effects to the lay public. And you're not doing that, right? It's a little bit of, again, having your cake and eating it too. Um, you can't talk about these things as if they're consequential. To but the thing is that the only way you can say what you're saying now is by paying attention to the effect sizes, right? So... You know, if we ignore effect sizes and we only care about crossing some, you know, uh, you know, p-value threshold, then we're like, it exists. My theory survives. I can still continue making these big claims. You know, don't, you know, uh, regulate your emotions when you're studying for an exam because you're not going to be able to pay attention that much, right? Um, so, but it's only because you're 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 actually you're putting some meaning to effect sizes that you're now having. Yeah. Okay. We should be, we should be hedging. We should be like, this is, you know, maybe not be so, so impactful. Like it is meaningful. I think it applies generally, regardless of what the effect size is in the experiment. If you take seriously the argument that the experiment effect sizes don't represent what happens in the real world, which I do, then I think you have to be really cautious about generalizing from the experiment to the real world. Right. And I think that's true regardless of what the effect size in the lab is. So, okay. I mean, it's, I, I think I agree, but like, I just want to push you a little bit. So, um, anchoring actually it doesn't matter any, any, any effect from judgment and decision making, you know, uh, loss aversion, anchoring, you name it. You, you, you pick your, your favorite one. Um, and which are not only replicable, that probably have healthy effects. Yeah, yeah, like anchoring as a D of like one and a half. Right. So 
in that case, a D of one and a half is the same as a D of 0.05. In terms of the extent to which we can talk about this with policymakers, the extent to which we can speak to businesses about designing products, uh, the extent to which we can tell like consumers or, or people who are interested in mental health or how to live their life, um, you know, how important this thing is for them. Yeah, I guess the other thing to keep in mind is how much does the thing that you're testing in the lab resemble the thing that's going to be happening in the real world? And that's sort of an open question, right? So with anchoring, it really depends. Like there might be cases in which people are motivated to think very carefully. And in that case, the standard anchoring paradigm where you're just asking them to make a factual judgment that they're not really even incentivized on, like maybe that is a bad fit. Right. Like, I, I'm not sure that I would feel confident about saying, like, based on those anchoring experiments, like we should expect a robust effect of anchoring where it really matters, like when people have a lot on the line. Um, now, there's, you know, in, in that area in particular, there's been other work that's tried to look at, like incentive compatibility and when people really care and so on and so forth. But that, that's an extra step that has to be done. Right. So I think in principle, um, I, I don't see a conflict there, right? I, I would say if I'm advising a policymaker, I'd say like, look, the lab research has shown this. It has a robust effect size. But if you want to try it for something that matters, like don't take those lab effect sizes as any sort of guide to what you might see in the real world. Right. Okay. I, I mean, I must admit I'm having, I, I, I think I, here's a place where I do, I do disagree. Um, because, and maybe I'm misusing effect sizes. But I take those effect sizes to mean how important this might be in general. How, and again, this seems, now that I'm gonna, about to say what I'm going to say, it, it seems incorrect, but it still feels correct. Um, how generalizable is it? How, perver how pervasive is this thing? So anchoring, so sure, you, you know, any, any one scenario you can imagine won't, even bear much of a resemblance to lab studies, but I feel I can say with some confidence that if I give you some number and ask you a question that's consequential and important for you in your life, that the number that I've given you is going to mislead you. It's going to affect you possibly in negative ways. I feel I can say that in a general sense, whereas I don't feel I can say with ego depletion, even if we granted a, a D of point one, that you know, having exerted effort or having controlled yourself in one dimension, you're going to be meaningfully impacted, you know, uh, you know, 10 minutes later, such that you really, really need to care about it. Hmm. Yeah. I, you know, I, I guess I disagree because I, I think that the anchoring effects that you're thinking of, like they are designed such that they're going to elicit the maximal effect size. So it's typically you ask people a question that doesn't matter that much to them, um, about which they don't have a lot of prior knowledge. Um, and I think, I mean, it's been shown that so when you do know more, um, you're less likely to accept just any anchor value, right? Um, so if you have an idea for what's plausible, you're like, yeah, no, that that seems crazy. Um, now, I don't know. I, I think I have to think more about this. Like, I, I do feel your intuition of like, look, I mean, if you like regularly get a D of 1.5, that should mean something compared to like a paradigm where you get a D of like, you know, 0.05. But in the end, it is just the standardized mean difference 
averaging across these different administrations of a procedure that might vary, right? And so if the procedure doesn't meaningfully represent what people are going to do in the world, then you shouldn't be that confident about making inferences from the lab studies to the real world. Yes, that's true. I mean, if you only had one specific operationalization of the IVDV relationship, right? But like with things like uh, ego depletion, things like anchoring, we've got hundreds of uh, combinations. And by dint of that, we've got some sense of generalizability. So maybe, I wonder if this is a point of agreement here. In any one study, the effect size might not be so important or interesting or informative um, other than, you know, how many participants you need for a study. Uh, but once you're dealing with over 50 or 100 different IVDV combinations um, where you can get some generalizability, now we can, we can say something about, like, how widely applicable it is, how meaningful it is. Yeah, but are those sampled randomly? Like, I, I don't see any reason to think that those IVDV combinations are representative in some way of what happens in the real world or that they're random samples from some theoretical population. Like, oftentimes it's researchers figure out which ones work well and they keep using those. Like, I, I think where we agree is that, like, if you want real world applicability, you have to establish generality. And the way that you do that is you try different IVDV combinations. You look for boundary conditions and so on. But I'm not sure that the average effect size across whatever the people, the experimenters who designed the studies that happen to be in your sample happen to decide was useful, that that's a meaningful statistic. Okay. Not meaningful in a, in a one-to-one way. So in other words, um, a 1.5 isn't really different than a 1.3. Okay, but I would say, like, in, you know, you know, use those numbers more grossly. Um, one point five is m- meaningfully more different than one, which is meaningfully more different than point five, which is meaningfully more different than point zero five, in terms of the robustness, in terms of the applicability, generalizability, etc. Right. So if you're like order of magnitude difference, yeah, maybe, yeah, I think I'd sign on to that. Yeah. Cool. Um, All right. Agreement. Hooray. (laughs) Okay. Well, I think that's everything we wanted to talk about today, right? I think so. Actually, I feel like uh, we got not heated per se, but uh, I feel there was actual disagreement there, which we typically agree. So a little disagreement is nice. Yeah, I agree. I agree. agree. (laughs) God damn it. (laughs)